Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast for Families. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Previously, Marie discussed the Athenian efforts in the Battle of Marathon and Pheidippides, the great runner. Today we will be discussing Sparta's contribution to the Greco-Persian Wars. Marie gave us the Athenian perspective up to the Battle of Marathon, but I say it's time we give the Spartans their due. Before we get too deep into the war, it'll be helpful to cover some of the background of the Spartans. Sparta was a rival Greek city to Athens. Sparta was on a peninsula that was basically an island known as Peloponnesus in a land called Laconia. Like Athens, it was formidable in battle, wealthy, free, powerful, proud, and incorrigibly competitive. It was a regional leader with many allies and vassals, but in many ways the two cities couldn't be more different. Athens was an expansionist naval power, priding itself on its art and philosophy. Sparta was an isolationist land power, priding itself on its military prowess and strong community. Spartans were famous for their warrior upbringings and skill in battle, particularly in working as a unit. As one Spartan king declared, One against one, they are as good as anyone in the world, but when they fight in a body, they are the best of all. Military education started young for Spartans. At age seven, all healthy males were enrolled in the compulsory state-sponsored public education system, the agoge. The agoge focused on the virtues of obedience, endurance, courage, and self-control. It taught combat and military strategy, but also reading and writing. Students even studied the poetry of great Spartan poets. In the agoge, the boys lived communally under austere conditions up until adulthood, they were subjected to continual physical competitions, given meager rations, and expected to become skilled at stealing food, among other survival skills. Even into their early adulthood, after getting married, they were still required to live with their brothers in the barracks instead of at home with their wives. Spartans had to sneak out in order to spend time with their women. When Spartan soldiers were sent out to war, Plutarch wrote that their mothers would send them with their shields and tell them, with it or on it. This meaning, you either come home holding your shield victorious, or come home dead draped over your shield. Needless to say, Spartan mothers could be a bit brutal. Now, in Sparta, mothers were greatly honored and very powerful. Since the men were focused entirely on war fighting, it was often their wives and mothers who ran the government, cities, and commerce. Women were allowed to own property and businesses in Sparta, which was completely unique among Greek city-states. An Attican woman once asked the Spartan queen, How is it you Spartan women are the only ones who can rule men? She replied, We are the only ones who give birth to men. To be successful at ruling, Spartan women also received a formal education. And just like the agoge for males, the education of women made sure to include plenty of athletic competitions, including javelin toss and wrestling, as well as competitive singing and dancing. Spartan women rarely did household chores. They owned a contingent of helots, a race of slaves, who would do the cooking, cleaning, and making of clothing. Marriage was sacrosanct to the Spartans. 
men who delayed marriage were publicly shamed. Those who fathered many sons were rewarded. For women, marriage meant they would get to shave their heads, and then they kept their hair short for the rest of their lives. Now, in addition for being known for their unique treatment of women, Spartans were also known for their treatment to the elderly. There was an expression in ancient Greece, only in Sparta does it pay to grow old. An example of this occurred at an Olympic event where Athenians were mocking an elderly man. When that man came to the Spartan section of spectators, the Spartans stood up in unison and offered him a seat. A Spartan commented, Every Greek knows what's right, only the Spartans do it. Spartans were also known for their hatred of elaborate and flowery language. As a result, they became famous for their one-liners. The more terse, concise, and blunt, the better. They actually beat children who answered questions with unnecessarily long-winded answers. Here are a few anecdotes. There's a famous story of a Spartan general conquering a city. He wrote back to Sparta saying, The city is taken. The Spartan leadership replied, All you had to say was taken. King Agasileus was famous for his many laconicisms. A visitor once asked him how far Sparta's borders stretched. Agasileus thrust out his spear and said, As far as this can reach. When asked about Sparta's lack of walls, Agasileus pointed to his troops and said, These are Sparta's walls. Years later, Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, wrote to the Spartans, If I invade Laconia, you will be destroyed, never to rise again. The Spartans replied with one word, if. Neither King Philip or Alexander attempted to invade Sparta. Spartans also had an absolute respect for the law. General Pausanias once said that, quote, laws ought to have authority over the men and not the men over the laws, close quote. And sure enough, when King Demaratus was exiled from Sparta, he was asked how that could happen to a king. He said, quote, because her laws are more powerful than I am her referring to Sparta. Demaratus eventually defected to the Persian side in the conflict we'll talk about today, and he would become an advisor to the king of the Persians against his own people. He warned the king, quote, For though the Spartans are free men, they are not entirely free. They accept law as their master, and they respect this master more than your subjects respect you. Whatever he, the law, commands, they do and his command never changes. It forbids them to flee in battle, whatever the number of their foes. He requires them to stand firm, to conquer or die. Close quote. Spartans were a very religious lot, but they focused their worship almost exclusively on the gods Apollo, Artemis, Athena, and Zeus. They had important religious festivals every year. Hykenkynthia and Carnea. Both of these festivals focused on worshipping Apollo. One took place at the beginning of summer, the other at the end. These holidays were so sacred that Spartans interrupted military campaigns to have their soldiers worship these at home. They also would negotiate truces in order to go home and celebrate. Now the last thing you need to know about the Spartans is, as mentioned earlier, Spartans were reliant on a race of subjugated people called Helots. Not only did the helots do all of the household chores, they also did much of the farming. This system worked out well for the Spartans, but not great for the helots. 
Because the Helots outnumbered the Spartans, they often rebelled. To prevent uprisings, the Spartans tried bullying Helots. They were known to force the Helots into getting drunk on wine and embarrassing themselves in public. Spartans also permitted the killing of Helots who were too smart or fit. The Spartans enlisted their best and brightest teenage boys to run the Cryptea, which was a secret police force responsible for terrorizing the Helots and keeping them down. Now that you understand a bit about the Spartans, we can dive back into the story of the Greco-Persian War. You'll recall that this war started in the 490s when the Athenians upset King Darius of the Persians by giving aid to the Ionians, a Greek people that were conquered by the Persians 60 years earlier. The Ionians had also sought the aid of the Spartans, but the Spartans elected to fight against Persia in a more indirect way. They propped up leaders unfriendly to Persians in other parts of the continent, and they used other peoples like the nomadic horse riders of Scythia or the fearsome sailors of Samos as a shield to protect Sparta. Sparta's main interest was in protecting Sparta, and these indirect methods ensured that the Persians would never muster the willpower to cross the Aegean Sea. But the Athenians drew the attention and ire of Persia, and King Darius had a personal vendetta against these Western Greeks. In 491 BC, Darius sent envoys to Sparta, telling them they were now required to submit to Persian rule by ceremoniously bringing forth a gift of earth and water. The Spartans could no longer play a backseat role in this conflict, and so they threw the envoys down a well and said, Dig it out for yourselves. Now, Sparta had a target painted on its back by the empire that contained two-fifths of the world's population and one-half of the world's resources and the Persians were quickly becoming a sea power. The Athenians appealed to the Spartans to help stave off a Persian invasion of 90,000 men on the buffer island of Eubea, and the Spartans promptly answered their call, preparing a large force to assist. But they were delayed by two factors. One, the Persians played a dirty trick. They launched the invasion into Marathon during Carnea, so most of the Spartans had to stay home to worship. Second, Plato tells us that there was also a Helot revolt, which prevented Sparta's allies from helping at the Battle of Marathon. Despite these setbacks, Sparta managed to send 2,000 men to help at Marathon, but they came one day late. Fortunately, the Athenians had outmaneuvered the enemy, resulting in a major victory that set the Persians back a decade. Darius died five years later in 486 BC, but not before planning his revenge campaign. His son Xerxes was eager to carry out the revenge campaign, but he had some rebellions in Egypt and Babylonia to deal with first. The revenge tour finally commenced in 481, ten years after the Battle of Marathon. In these ten years, the Persians and Greeks had plenty of time to prepare for their next face-off. Xerxes assembled an army of 240,000 men, along with a navy of 1,200 triremes, warships, armed armed with blades, rams, and archers. These warships carried 36,000 marines, and innumerable galloys, big-bellied support ships, were full of supplies and horses to support the triremes and the land forces. Xerxes built a canal through Athos to move his navy, and he built a bridge of ships over the Hellespont to move his army. This bridge had to be a mile long to stretch over the Dardanelles, a historic strait near Troy. 
the strait held symbolic meaning as the boundary between Europe and Asia. The bridge ended up being very frustrating to maintain, and at one point, a storm screwed the whole thing up, causing it to be rebuilt. Xerxes ordered the sea to be whipped in retribution. Meanwhile, the Greeks, on the other hand, used this time to formalize the alliance of Athens and its allies with the Peloponnesian League, Sparta, the Hegemon, and its allies. This coalition would not have worked without the Spartans. This was because, at this point, no one trusted the Athenians. The Athenians had attacked most of the coalition members at one point or another, including Sparta. The Spartans, however, had no desire to expand and existed peacefully with its allies. Sparta didn't force its allies to pay tribute either, unlike Athens. And so, the League decided to put Sparta in charge, and that meant that the navy of 271 triremes, 127 of which Athens had recently built, were under Sparta's control. Despite this great union, most other Greeks went for the Persian cause or didn't help at all. Only a minority decided to resist. Samos, Macedon, Thessaly, Thebes, Argos, Larissa, and Aeolia were all on Team Persia. And as I mentioned earlier, exiled Spartan King Demaratus also defected to the Persians. In 481 BC, the Persians began their attack. They marched down from Macedon and headed south towards Athens. By 480 BC, they arrived at what they thought was the only pass capable of fitting their army, a 40-foot-wide gap known as Thermopylae, or the Hot Gates in English. In myth, Thermopylae was known as one of the gates to Hades. Because of its strategic location, it had been and would be the site of many battles. The Greek coalition forces, under the direction of Spartan King Leonidas, planned to block the Persian land forces here before they could get to Athens. Meanwhile, the Spartan Eurybiades commanded the Athenian navy, blocking the Persians at Artisimium from landing any of their marines, thus preventing Leonidas' men from being flanked. Knowing that the Spartans planned to block this pass, the Persians launched their assault on Carnea again. And it was also the Olympic Games that week, too. So, most of the Spartan forces were locked up, staying at home, celebrating the festivals. Nevertheless, King Leonidas kept his word and remained at the pass with his royal guard of 300 men. Leonidas also led the Greek coalition land force of around 7,000 additional men. These Greeks faced frightful odds. They would be outnumbered almost 10 to 1 at both battles, both at land and at sea, for the Greek navy was far inferior to the Persian one. As the Persian land forces assembled in front of the gates a Greek soldier that fought at Marathon remarked to one of the Spartans that he had seen the Persian army and that the quantity of arrows they fired would blot out the sun. The Spartan, Dionikis, said, So much the better. Then we will be able to fight in the shade. Xerxes started things off by sending an envoy to King Leonidas, promising to spare the defenders at Thermopylae if they yielded up their arms. Leonidas declared, Molan Labe, meaning, come and take them. Xerxes was perplexed by this small force, so intent on opposing him. As his army got into position, he expected the Greeks to flee. For four days he waited, but the Greeks never left. On the fifth day, he sent his Medes to take out the Greeks, 
and bring them back to him alive. The Medes fought all of that day, but the Medes with their shorter spears could not gain an inch over the Greek forces. Many of them died until they were eventually driven off. The Greeks remained unmovable. The next day, Xerxes sent his Persian men that he called his immortals to eliminate the Greeks, thinking that surely these men would clear up the pass handily. The immortals fought all that day until they had sustained such heavy casualties that they were driven off as well. Xerxes consoled himself, thinking that at least the immortals must have killed and wounded most of the Greeks, but to his horror, this was not the case. The Greeks still stood strong, holding their position at the hot gates. Xerxes had no idea what to do. Whoever he sent would be destroyed, and the Greeks would always remain unmoving. Finally, a treacherous local Greek from the area named Epialtes offered to lead the Persians on a secret mountain path known only to locals. Part of the Persian army went with Epialtes, clambering up the path. When the Greek coalition forces at Thermopylae heard that an army of Persians was moving around them to encircle and entrap them, many of them panicked. Seeing their fear, Leonidas sent the 7,000 men of the allied forces back to their home cities, while he and his 300 guards offered to remain to defend the pass and delay the Persians. Most of the Greek forces agreed to this, but a few hundred thespians, led by Demophilus, remained with their Spartan brothers willingly, and a few hundred more Thebans were also ordered to remain. This brought the number of Greeks to about a thousand. Now, I didn't mention earlier, but Leonidas's 300 men were very special. Not necessarily because they were the most elite Spartans, even though most of them certainly were. No, they were special because each of them had fathered at least one son. While the other Greek coalition forces simply wanted to survive and defend the pass, the Spartans wanted to die meaningful yet glorious deaths to inspire their sons, the next generation of Spartan warriors. And so in many respects, it made sense to send the others home. Except the thespians, of course. Herodotus wrote, quote, For knowing the death which was about to come upon them by reason of those who were going round the mountain, they displayed upon the barbarians all the strength which they had, to its greatest extent, disregarding danger and acting as if possessed by a spirit of recklessness, close quote. Truly, without the others there holding them back, the Spartans were free to engage in a dangerous and deadly tactic. They had the Thespians and Thebans act as a rearguard to keep the Persians around the mountain busy. Meanwhile, the Spartans would take on the main Persian force, planning to transit through the hot gates. The Spartans withdrew from the narrowest point of the passage into a much larger area. Instead of a tight formation, they formed into a long line. This caused Xerxes to feel comfortable in committing more forces, luring many more combatants into the fray. There was also now enough room in the passage to deploy the Persian officers, who would use whips to make sure their men did not retreat this time. This was all according to the Spartan plan. The Persians lost an estimated 20,000 men that day, including two sons of Darius, before the Persian princer broke through the rear guard and began slaughtering the 300 Spartans. As things began to go south, the Spartan spears began to splinter, and the men drew their swords, 
Fighting an enemy on both sides, Leonidas needed one of his men to be a messenger to bring the news of their impending defeat back to Sparta. The first two Spartans he asked refused, preferring to die in the field with Leonidas. The third person Leonidas asked replied, But sire, if I stay, then the news will be better. Eventually, each Spartan was killed, but somehow word of the defeat was delivered to members of the Greek navy waiting on the shore. These ships traveled back to the main fleet, fighting the Persians at Artemisium, and informed them of the Battle of Thermopylae's results. Consequently, Eurybates had the Greek navy retreat to the shallower straits of Salamis, where they would soon score a huge naval victory that would demoralize the Persians, leave their land forces unsupported, and threaten the sea bridge at Hellespont. Meanwhile, in the aftermath of the Battle of Thermopylae, King Xerxes asked Demaratus, How many more warriors are there like this? Demaratus responded, The Lacedaemons altogether are many in number, and their cities are many. But what you would know I will tell you. There is in Lacedaemon a city called Sparta, a city of about 8,000 men, all of them equal to those you have fought here today. The rest of the Lacedaemons are not equal to these, yet they are valiant men. think of no better place to end this podcast there with those ominous words of that disgraced Spartan king Demaratus. What will Xerxes do next? How will the Greeks survive? Will the tenuous Athenian and Spartan alliance endure? Well, you'll have to tune in next time. We covered a lot of ground today. We talked about how Spartan education, agoge, and their warrior culture functioned. We talked about their rivalry with Athens, their leadership over the League, the aftermath of the Battle of Marathon, and finally we covered the glorious battle at Thermopylae. I felt it was important to cover this topic today because there is much to be learned from the dichotomy between the Athenians and the Spartans. I think it's interesting how their cultures and heroes clashed and collaborated. I also think it's an inspiring tale of standing up for home and country against overwhelming odds. For generations, our civilization has found strength from this story, and I wanted to pass that on to you. This week's episode is brought to you by way too many sources to name them all, but if you'd like to learn more, check out the Spartan Society article at history.com, the Greco-Persian War Lecture by Paul A. Ray at Hillsdale Online College, Check out Herodotus Book 7. Check out Livius.org's articles on Sparta, Persians, and the Hellespont. Watch the YouTube video, quote, Epic Moments in History, Top 10 Spartan One-Liners, close quote, by Invicta. And finally, check out the podcast called The Art of Manliness, The Spartans at Thermopylae, featuring Paul Cartledge. Thank you very much for listening today. Don't forget to share this podcast with a friend, and that's history for you.